The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Let me take just about five minutes uh, to go over um, one more example of uh, text-critical decision and then uh, open it up for uh, uh, questions you may uh, have with regard to your assignment. The, uh, the, example, the other example that I want to um, uh, talk about is in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, which is an interesting um, uh, matter that has been debated for a variety of uh, reasons. But um, you may recall, I don't know how well you can see in the back, but um, uh, therefore now there's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. And uh, now this is again the, the UBS text, the third edition, not the fourth, but the fourth reads the same. Uh, although the apparatus is a little different. And um, that is the reading, obviously, which has been adopted by the committee. Then you go down to the uh, footnote, the apparatus. You see that they give this particular decision a grade of A, which means that they are quite certain of it. Then, uh, first of all, they give you the evidence for the reading which they adopted in the text, namely, where the text simply ends with the word Yesu. And they tell you, well, Codex Sinaiticus, uh, with the asterisk, which means that this is the uh, original hand of this manuscript, but it also alerts you to the fact that a correction has been made as well, and we'll see that in a moment. But the original scribe that wrote this manuscript had the same text that you see up here. That's the point. Codex Vaticanus, Vaticanus C, which is, which is Codex Ephraimi, but the second corrector, so that you know, doesn't have as much weight and so on, DG, etc., uh, gives you some version, some fathers. Then you have these two oblique lines, lashes, to indicate now we're moving to another variant. And the next variant is Yesu, but with an addition now, me katasarka peripatusin, namely, who walk not according to the flesh. Not according to the flesh walking. Then they have a little notation here, see chapter 8, verse 4, because that phrase appears in, in this same chapter, verse 4, and what they're really suggesting to you that that's where, it, where this really comes from. Um, Codex Alexandrinus has that addition, a corrector of Codex D, and so on. Then you come to a third variant. Yesu, as in the text, then the addition that we have already looked at, but then an additional clause, but katapneuma, according to the Spirit. And again, they refer you to verse 4 as the possible 
source for that variation. Now you have Codex Sinaiticus, but a corrector. So you see back here, the editor had alerted you to the fact that a correction had been made in the manuscript, and now he tells you what that correction is. A later scribe added that whole, both of those clauses. Um, and a, a corrector of D as well, and so on, uh, etc. Now, that's really all that you need to uh, be concerned about. Uh, it is in this, in connection with this particular variant that they give you the abbreviation BYZ. Remember, that's his way of saying that's the Byzantine text, or the majority of the, of the manuscripts, which happen to be late, have this reading. That's why it is in the King James Version. The LECT means the lectionaries. That is, the majority of the lectionaries, those um, sections of scripture that were put together for reading in the worship services, uh, most of them have that same edition, and then a little bit of, a, of further uh, evidence. Now, if you follow the uh, outline that I have, that I'm asking you to follow, and uh, again remember that that this particular assignment is not intended to be an opportunity for creativity. Um, you are supposed to be copycats in a sense, uh, because the what I'm really after is have you understood, have you grasped the, the process here? Even though, you know, you may disagree, by the way, uh, ideologically with some of this stuff, or you may think that there's another method that, that fits you better, that's fine, and you can do it anytime you want to. This is not, you know, you're not committing yourself to anything here. You're simply telling me, you know, this is how, how I understand the process that you're suggesting, okay? Now, there is a little bit of room for creativity in, in the way in which you express ideas and that kind of thing, but uh, that's not the, the main point. So again, follow that outline uh, strictly. Follow it strictly. So after you list the variants, remember the first thing is to deal with internal evidence, and that involves both intrinsic and transcriptional probability. In this case, uh, and intrinsic probability, what is more likely for Paul to have written here? And if you look at the commentaries, you will find uh, consistently the commentators will tell you something like this. The affirmation of verse 1 is something about the um, uh, forgiveness of sins that we have. You know, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul has made it very clear in the earlier part of the letter that uh, the only reason why we are free from condemnation is Christ's work, grace, accepted through faith. And that therefore, it would be inconsistent for Paul now to qualify his doctrine of justification by adding these clauses. You know, we have no condemnation in Christ Jesus who, well, those who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. That sounds like an inconsistency. You know, uh, our justification does not depend on our ability to lead obedient lives but only on God's grace through faith. And so, therefore, I'm saying that most commentators would argue 
on the basis of intrinsic probability, namely Paul's theology in, in the whole context of Romans, that um, it doesn't fit to have those variants, that qualification, whether it's one or two clauses. I think that's a reasonable argument, uh, but like most things in this world, it's not totally airtight. Uh, and as a matter of fact, if you were to read uh, what John Murray has to say in his commentary on Romans, he makes the point that uh, when Paul speaks about no condemnation, he, he is not still dealing with justification by faith, uh, you know, pure and simple. But he's talking about condemnation in a much broader sense. Uh, the condemnation of sin, not only in terms of the punishment that uh, we deserve, but also in terms of the condemning power that sin can have in our lives. And part of the evidence for this would be verse 2, because now you have a reason given for verse 1, namely because the, uh, the uh, law of the Spirit of life has freed me from the law of, the, of sin and death. The law of sin and death, in other words... Murray suggests that possibly, already in verse 1, you're really dealing with sanctification instead of justification. And if that's the case, then the, uh, the variant readings are not so inconsistent. Actually, Murray does not argue that way when he's talking about the textual variant. But I'm suggesting that if you follow Murray's interpretation here, then the usual argument against the, uh, the, the variant is not as strong as it has been. I, I, I continue to think that it is reasonable and that uh, it has some weight, but it is not totally uh, persuasive. Uh, question? Right, but, but that's assuming that he's already shifted the argument. But I think the, the usual uh, way of dealing with it, if, if you take the view that katakrima there in verse 1, is a reference to justification by faith and not to this larger question, then it does seem inconsistent to qualify justification uh, this way. But if you take it, because see, Murray talks about the, uh, the forensic element or the judicial element in sanctification. Uh, in fact, later in, in, that, in verse 3, uh, it speaks about God condemning sin in the flesh. Uh, it's really annulling the power, perhaps. Uh, so if you take in that broader sense, then of course it, it fits because Paul is not, you know, divorcing these things one from another for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That would be good. On, I mean, unless it's something that's universal knowledge or, but, uh, you know, the more specific you get in terms of a, of a commentator's opinion or, a, or a, maybe some... Um, facts that you wouldn't have easily gotten somewhere else, then it would be appropriate. All you have to do is in parentheses, give me the author. No, 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 no. Yeah. yeah. The which? If I, if I write access to next day and this is copied somewhere, right. am I violating the honesty? No, although in that particular case, you may remember when I was talking about it, I said that for, for that particular variant, I found it useful to distinguish between semantic and so on, but, but don't try to follow that necessarily. Uh, when I speak about the procedure and the outline, I'm talking about the headings that are in your lecture outline primarily, and not at all the details in the actual explanation. Uh, 
But no, no, if, I mean, if you want to use some of the same phrases that I use, that doesn't violate uh, the, uh, the statement of plagiarism. But don't feel that you need to do that, yeah. Right. Well, the reasons that we were talking about when we're dealing with Hort, it's not just that they're late. I mean, that's part of the issue. But when you look at the whole pattern of readings in the text, uh, they seem to be inferior. For example, when they seem to merge uh, two different variants into one. That's one of the examples given. Uh, or, again, you, you find a whole series of variants that can be easy, easily explained as uh, scribal tendencies. So th the kinds of things that we talked about before in, uh, in describing Hort's method. Yeah. Uh, exactly, yeah. Well, we can talk about it. Uh, we'll go to that question in, in the, when we finish with this, and maybe we can get a little interaction. Okay, but let's go back to internal evidence, okay? Uh, said a little bit about intrinsic probability. Now, transcriptional probability. Um, what is a scribe most likely to have done? And uh, remember that at this point, what you do is to go to that list of probable causes of errors in Metzger's book. Uh, he talks both about the uh, conscious and unconscious errors or corruptions or whatever. And you start looking at those and see if, if any, any of, of those probable, you know, those tendencies or whatever uh, may help us to explain what might have caused uh, a variant. Now, in this case, the obvious one is, remember the principle, prefer the shorter reading. Scribes were more likely to add than to subtract. Again, that's not a canon in the sense it has an absolute value. It's simply a way of saying you have clear evidence that um, scribes did that sort of thing more frequently. And so it is a, a factor that you need to take into account. Um, you do have that clause in verse 4. And uh, it could be, and, and even though this is somewhat speculative, I think you need to realize that this sort of thing really did happen frequently. That there's a copy of the New Testament, Greek New Testament, and there is the, the preacher on Saturday night preparing his sermon. And as he's talk, thinking about, I'm going to preach on verse 1, you see, and this wonderful affirmation. But as he reads the rest of the chapter, he sees in verse 4 that statement, those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, and he says, ah, better not forget to bring this into the whole picture. So he puts it in the margin, because maybe it's in the next page, you see. <laughs> so he puts it in the margin. Mekata paripatusi katapnuma, you see. And uh, five years later, somebody's copying and sees that on the margin. And the person who's copying is thinking, oops, I better don't, not leave this out, you know. And we know that sort of thing happened. I mean, it's, it's not all that difficult to prove. You cannot prove it in this particular case because you don't have the two manuscripts, if you will. But it, it's, a, it's a very common thing that happens in scribal procedures, not just with the Bible, but with other documents as well. Uh, so that's a rule, you see, or a canon or a principle of scribal tendency that sheds some light here. And remember that the fundamental question that you're asking 
with transcriptional probability is which reading more likely gave rise to the other reading. Uh, and you see, if the longer reading was there to begin with, can we come up with a good reason uh, to explain the omission of, of that clause? You, maybe you can come up with something, but uh, we know in, in terms of scribal practice that the reverse was more likely. And uh, you can come up with a reason against it's, it's not conclusive, and some scholars give that sort of thing more credence than others, but it is a factor to take into account. So that both in terms of intrinsic probability and transcriptional probability, you will probably conclude that uh, the first reading, which is the reading adopted in this text, is the more probable one. Now you go to external evidence, and again you look at uh, the manuscripts, and you find that undoubtedly you have uh, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and Codex Bizi. Now, remember first, you're just looking at these witnesses individually considered. And uh, these are early manuscripts. Uh, 1739, that very important uh, medieval manuscript that seems to have been copied from a fourth century manuscript. Um, you have uh, both uh, Old Latin and Coptic uh, support, but that's going beyond the Greek manuscripts as such. In the case of the second variant, you have a very important manuscript, uh, Codex Alexandrinus, and uh, you don't want to uh, minimize the significance of this uh, important manuscript. Uh, C is a fairly good one as well, but certainly uh, these two do not have as, as much weight as uh, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Uh, when you come to the third variant, there's virtually nothing that is really, really significant. Now, you have a corrector, a late corrector of Sinaiticus, but, but you cannot put that in the same category as the original scribe. Also, a corrector of the K and P are, are later on shows. You do have Minuscule 33, remember the Queen of the Cursives, and, and that's something to, uh, to take into account. But when you look at, at the whole picture, uh, you, you know, almost certainly at this point would say that if you look at the witnesses individually considered, uh, the, the first reading uh, is certainly the, the most probable. Yeah. Yeah, didn't you look at the uh, copy of Codex Sinaiticus we had here? Uh, it varies. Uh, off. Sometimes they would just scratch the reading and, and write on top of it. Sometimes they would just write something above the line. Sometimes it would be in the margin. But it's always in the page, yeah. All right. Yes. In this particular passage. But elsewhere it does. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. To the what? Oh, yeah. You cannot see it very well, but it's just that there is a C. Yeah. Yeah, but not just the corrector, but the, the third set of correctors. A, B, C. Yeah. That's right. Mm -hmm. By the way, if, if you want a little bit more information about this, and, and I, I think I've uh, neglected to mention it, in the latest edition of the Nestle Allen text, in the introduction, uh, there's a little section where, in fact, let me find it quickly in case you want to uh, take a look at it.
on page 48 of the introduction where uh, they give you some information about the correctors of the uh, main manuscripts. Uh, this is a little unnerving to tell you the truth the way that it is listed here and I have actually been meaning to write to Barbara Allant for some explanation about this because uh, they are giving the first corrector of Sinaiticus as dating from the 4th to the 6th century. Now that really conflicts with every other bit of information that I have including the what had been the definitive study of the manuscript by Milne and Skeet. Um, but at least you should know that from the point of view of, um, of this edition, uh, the fact that it is the first corrector apparently does not necessarily mean that it is a corrector contemporaneous with the original production of the manuscript. Uh, this is very puzzling to me, but uh, you need to know that that is a uh, some apparent motive. Maybe they have looked at the manuscript again and have come up with different conclusions. But uh, anyway, there you can find some more information about the date of the corrections. 48 of the introduction. Yeah. The relative weight of the Greek manuscripts. Non-Greek. Um, I prefer that you deal with the non-Greek evidence in connection with text types. Uh, so when, when I talk about individual witnesses, I, I just limit that to the Greek manuscripts. So then we go on to uh, evidence of text types. Remember to skip the, the biz about the groups. And uh, here again, the, uh, the material is relatively simple because you have um, clear, well, the first thing, remember, you ask is, which is the Byzantine reading? And we already talked about that, is the third one. The second question is, is there non-Byzantine support for that reading? In other words, is the reading which is the Byzantine reading, is it supported by other text types besides the Byzantine text type? And that question uh, has to be answered in the affirmative, although with some qualifications, for example, here, it's difficult to say anything uh, really valuable with regard to the correctors because the correctors are not usually identified as having a particular text type. Normally, when you have a late corrector, uh, the corrections are of the Byzantine character because you're dealing with a later period in time where a scribe is trying to adjust his manuscript to what has now become the standard text. But uh, in this particular instance, you do have 33, which is regarded as an Alexand as containing basically an Alexandrian text type. Um, and uh, then you, let's see, what else do you have here? The old uh, Italic, which means that there's Western support for that reading. Uh, so you cannot simply throw it out without any further consideration. Uh, you do have uh, non-Byzantine support for the Byzantine reading. And, uh, and so you have to, to uh, you know, take, uh, take it into account. Then the next step is, what is the nature of the support for the other reading or readings? And at this point you would say, well, uh, the second reading has some Alexandrian support in Alexandrinus 
also Codex C is a basically uh, uh, Alexandrian manuscript. It does have Western support. And, um, so, and of course, Byzantine support. Chrysostom is an early witness to the Byzantine text type. Um, but then when you try to summarize all this evidence, you know, give the history of, uh, of, the, of the text, uh, you would probably want to say, look clearly, in terms of text types, the Alex, proto-Alexandrian Alexandrian reading is the shorter reading. Uh, you, you do find that reading widely spread because you have uh, Western support in the Old Italic, uh, Coptic support, which is also Alexandrian, but, but brings you back as well. Uh, you do have uh, the support of Marcion. Marcion was a heretic, but um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad reading. He's just a witness, a very early witness for that particular reading. Um, Ambrosiaster, Athanasius, here you have some uh, significant uh, support so that all of the text type indication is that um, uh, the, the short reading was out there very early over a, a fairly wide geographical uh, spread. Uh, the, the second reading also has evidence of antiquity, particularly if it is in Codex Alexandrinus, which is a fifth century manuscript, but probably indicates that it was in existence earlier than that. And uh, also some breadth. Again, you have the Italic uh, evidence and the Vulgate and so on, uh, but not as strong as, and not probably not as ancient as the first one. Whereas the last reading, uh, there's virtually no really, uh, the earliest stuff you get here is the old Latin and perhaps, well, this is, uh, no, this is one of the later Syriac uh, revisions. Uh, so in terms of, I guess, if you're trying to figure the, the history of the text, there's relatively little evidence for, for this being an earlier or widely spread uh, uh, variant. And therefore, when you come to the conclusion for, from text types, uh, you would almost surely decide that the first and shorter reading uh, has the strongest text critical support and um, text type support. And uh, here again, in, in every stage of the argument, the, uh, the argument has leaned in that direction. And that is why the UBS text uh, committee decided that this was a fairly simple and, uh, and certain uh, problem. And so they gave it the A rating. Yeah. You, you want to give it significant weight as, um, as far as minuscules go. So relative to the unshuls, they're not as strong as most of the unshuls, but uh, it's, a, it's an important uh, piece of evidence. Um, and again, I think when you read the way that Metzger describes it, that gives you a sense for, uh, for how much credence to give to it. Yeah. Well, yes, but again, there are qualifications. And again, uh, Metzger gives you all the information about that. In the Gospels, it has a Byzantine text. In the Epistles, it has an Alexandrian text. 
That's right. Just, just what I said, you know, uh, you're, you know, uh, what is this? Remember when we talked about what is the support for the other variants? Then you would say the strongest uh, witnesses to the Alexandrian family support the shorter reading. But, you know, you're going to have to qualify it some way. It's not as though the Alexandrian witnesses are unanimously in support of that variant. There's also some Alexandrian support for this other one. And so that is going to uh, weigh in your final decision how much certainty you're going to have about these things. It's very frequent. Um, in fact, probably happens more than, than the reverse, uh, that a, um, the, the members or the representatives of a family are not unanimous for a reading. Other questions? Yeah. Uh, I have the... Mm-hmm. Okay. I, maybe I was just slow, but as we were reading the variants, I didn't think that I saw it. it no, it, it just, um, I think, for, I th yeah, for this exercise, I wanted to use both. Oh, okay. And in fact, one of the purposes, if I didn't make this clear, one of the main purposes of this exercise is to give you some familiarity in interpreting the apparatus of both editions. Oh, okay. Yeah. And precisely because uh, Nestle Allen gives you a more selective a number of witnesses to conserve space and, and actually to be more helpful in some ways, uh, you do need to look at UBS for, for a fuller uh, documentation. Other questions either about this uh, specific problem or about uh, your paper, if you've started working on it, anything that's still not clear, you need some more information about? When you're dealing with the text types, it's very important to take into account the versional and patristic evidence. But when you're dealing with the individual witnesses, I want you to, at that point, you only need to worry about the Greek manuscripts. Yeah? Um, okay. For, for your basic evidence, you look at this, Nestle Allen, and the UBS text. Second. Uh, Metzger's book, The Text of the New Testament, uh, very important to help you identify uh, the relative value, significance of the manuscripts, also to figure out which text type they belong to, you know, at the end of the book, also to remind you of the scribal problems, that kind of thing. Um, you will probably want to look at one or two commentaries on Matthew, um, I would probably suggest um, Robert Gundry's commentary on Matthew would be a good one on the reference shelf. Um, let's see, I don't think that... Pardon? Gundry. I guess another one would be McNeil. Um, I don't think Beer gives you very much to go on. Almost all these commentators give very little information, but at least you get some sense of you know, what they're thinking. I don't want you to spend more than 20 minutes looking at this stuff. Don't try to look at 1,500 commentaries. It's, not, it's really not worth it, but uh, uh, you know. And then also, remember, I, I do want you, although preferably to do this at the end of the exercise, to look at uh, the textual commentary on the New Testament by Metzger the textual commentary in the New Testament, by, on the Greek New Testament by Metzger, which, is, which summarizes the opinion of the committee 
of the UBS committee when they came up with their text. And uh, he will give you both internal and external type of evidence, uh, you know, very compacted, but, uh, yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> when you're dealing with individual witnesses, restrict yourself to the Greek manuscripts. But when you're dealing with text types, you've got to do the whole shebang, the versional evidence, as well as the Greek manuscripts. Yeah. Well, in a sense, what you're asking really takes us to, to the next thing we need to deal with. If you will um, look at your um, lecture outline, get on page lecture notes, page 11, there's the one section that we skipped, remember, at the, on the top half of the page, the evangelical scene, the evangelical scene. And um, really the answer to your question is this thing that you're supposed to read on, on Reformed textual criticism, where I try to deal with some of those issues. And I want to take, you know, as little time as I need to, to summarize what's here, on the basis of, um, of these little, you know, this little outline that I have uh, in the lecture notes, uh, the question that comes up is whether when we do text-critical work, whether our work ought to be different in character because we're Christians. Uh, the argument here is that modern textual criticism is practiced by people who do not believe really in the authority of Scripture, at least not in the way that we do, and that therefore textual criticism uh, is not necessarily, uh, for some people it's not a very wholesome discipline or, or it's not a very reliable discipline, that uh, Christians uh, have a different perspective and therefore they ought to uh, come up with a distinct approach or whatever. And uh, that's kind of the question that I address in that little article. In fact, I make it a little bit even more specific, not just Christian, but in terms of Reformed uh, commitments. Uh, should it make a difference? And see, the, the answer obviously is yes and no. Um, it depends what you have in mind here. Let's suppose, for example, you know, J. Gresham Machen wrote his book on, uh, on uh, New Testament Greek grammar. Why is it that Machen uses paradigms like the unbelievers do? Uh, why is it that he has the same labels like genitive or accusative or, or so on as non-Christian scholars do? Uh, well, because nobody argues, Van Til least of all, that everything that comes out of, of a non-Christian's um, mouth uh, is untrue, except, of course, in the sense in which, uh, in which Van Til stresses the, the, the context and the framework or the foundation out of which that arises. But, um, of course, the fact that we have a commitment to the gospel and to the authority of Scripture ought to influence the way we think about everything, not just textual criticism, for that matter. And I think if you're going to deal with textual criticism and say, well, it has to be different, well, then it, 
then you're going to have to do that also for the text critical work of any literature, not just the Bible. But if you're do, doing Shakespeare or whatever, your Christian convictions ought to influence the way in which you approach that as well. And I don't hear anybody doing anything about that, I, I might add. But uh, the problem uh, in terms of the polemic nowadays, and has been going on for a number of decades, is that in some uh, Christian groups, some evangelical groups, you have these uh, very, very severe attacks, specifically on, on Westcott and Hort, because remember it was their work that kind of settled the issue out there in scholarship. Uh, it uh, put, you know, it was a final nail in the coffin, as some people have said, uh, with regard to the um, reign of the Texas Receptus up to that point. And some of these attacks uh, are uh, quite vicious in character, really. I mean, people start looking for anything negative. Um, oh, yes, you know, uh, Hort um, was a racist, and uh, he also was an anti-feminist, uh, or he was a spiritist. And, uh, you know, all these things, you can find enough stuff to make it sound uh, important. And you can do that with almost every, anybody that, that you want to attack. Um, but if you go beyond those kinds of things to uh, questions about the, the logic of the argument, um, that's why I asked you to read Van Bruggen, why I suggest you may want to do some additional reading in this book by, um, um, what's his name? Huh? Pickering, uh, The Identity of the New Testament Text which is probably the, the um, in terms of a full-scale attempt to refute uh, the Westcott-Hort theory, generally speaking, that's the, uh, that's the fullest account. Um, but I, I want you to, to look at that's, that's all that stuff in perspective. There are some doctrinal concerns, and uh, I try to address those. Uh, the the uh, basic argument is, and again, Dean Bergen talked about that, and Ed Hills talked about that, and other people talk about it, that the Bible is a special book, and that Christ promised that uh, not even uh, uh, you know, a tittle would fall out of the law, and that all my words will um, uh, stand. You know, earth, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will not pass away. And that is understood as a promise with regard to the transmission of Scripture, now, what I try to argue here is, of course it is in one sense, although exegetically there are some interesting questions about that, what exactly was Jesus referring to. But uh, I have no problem whatsoever with the, uh, the uh, concern that the Bible promises uh, believers that the Word of God is going to be preserved. Uh, that's not a point at issue. The point is, what form does that preservation really take? The way that people like Bergen and Hills talk uh, about this matter, you would, I think logically it entails that in that whole transmission, there was never any mistake introduced. But they know perfectly well, because Hills was a, uh, you know, was a strong scholar in many respects. He went to Harvard and, and did some of his work at the Harvard Divinity School. He knows better than anybody else that even if you restrict yourself to the Byzantine text, there are lots of variations in the Byzantine text. In fact, um, a few years ago, 
finally somebody came out with the Greek New Testament according to the majority text. Um, Zane Hodges and um, a collaborator. And uh, when I heard that this project was going on, I wondered, as many people must have wondered, well, I wonder what they will do when the Byzantine text is not uniform. And then the uh, text came out, and I looked, and I saw what they did. What they had to do was, they, they first to have the, um, the Gothic M for the majority text. But there are times when the majority text is not uniform, so they might use a Roman M in bold to indicate that there are deviations even within the Byzantine group. And many times, they, they're going to have to give you the M with the PT here, because they're even, it's evenly divided. And when, when that Greek text came out, I said, well, I'm going to count how many times in the footnotes they have to give me the MPT. I went through Matthew, and at the end of Matthew, as I recall, I had some 70 examples, and I thought I could stop counting. Because, you see, if you're going to raise questions about the authority of, of Scripture or about God's preservation and use that argument in support of the Byzantine text, you're going to have to answer the question, how is it possible that in the Gospel of Matthew alone, the Byzantine text is evenly divided on 70 different instances? Now, they might say, oh, but those are trivial things. Of course, and most text critical issues are trivial anyway. Uh, but that is just not sufficient reason to, um, uh, to say that, that the principles and the methods are inconsistent or that, or that by adopting this, you're questioning uh, God's providential work uh, throughout the centuries. And so the point to remember again is, uh, you see, Dean Bergen, sometimes the way he argued, he would say, make comments like, I find it difficult to believe, he would say, that in some cases the, the, the original reading is, is to be found uh, that the true word of God, you see, is found only in a 4th century manuscript or something like that, uh, making it appear as though uh, somebody is assuming that the Byzantine text doesn't really give you the, the word of God. Well, of course it gives you the word of God, but that's a different issue. That's a different issue in terms of trying to have as, as, as accurate a picture as possible of the way in which the text uh, was transmitted. We're really moving here between the doctrine and the technical arguments, by the way. Uh, another interesting aspect of the whole debate when this particular text was published, uh, according to the majority text, uh, was, well, now I wonder what they're going to do when they have differences in the, in the majority text, in the Byzantine uh, manuscripts. How are they going to make up their mind which of the two variants to choose? So you read the introduction to the Greek text, and you know what they start talking about? Oh, well, you know, scribal tendencies. And you start using, in effect, uh, some of the, uh, the procedural and, and, and matters of criteria as well uh, that Hort developed. Because what other choice do you have? Um, well, I go through some of the other arguments in the, in the article. Please make sure you read this very carefully. One of the things that I um, point out, uh, which you, you, you need to understand because this is an important uh, issue, 
the defenders of the Byzantine text, or the traditional text, or the majority text, whatever you want to call it, argue that, yeah, it is true, they say, that the earliest manuscripts uh, have a different text type. But the reason, they say, is this, that these manuscripts nobody read. People didn't like them, so they just set them aside. That's why they have survived. Whereas the, uh, the true text has survived in the later manuscripts because the earliest copies just got worn out. Um, the other side of the argument is that the earliest manuscripts, particularly when you come, through, uh, come up with the papyri and so on, are kind of localized in Egypt. Because, of course, that's where they survived. The climate was dry there. And so the, the argument is, aha, uh, maybe the Byzantine text was there already at an ancient uh, time in the 2nd or 3rd century. It's just that we don't have evidence from those other regions. Well, as I tried to, uh, to point out to you, you can always come up, you can always come up uh, when you're dealing with evidence of this type some kind of speculation that may account for the evidence as we have it. The question is not whether you, whether you have a good enough imagination to come up with such arguments, but what is cogent in, in terms of the evidence. Uh, you see, people will say uh, that when you talk about, you know, there's no evidence for the Byzantine text prior to the fourth century, and you need to understand I hope you understand that there's no dispute about that. I mean, there are some people who say, oh, but you see, there are these Byzantine readings in the papyri. That's true. Uh, that is, there are certain readings which Hort uh, identified as Byzantine because they were characteristic of the Byzantine type, and they were not found elsewhere. And now the papyri have arisen out of the sand, and, and you find a few of these readings here and there. But that's not the issue. The point is that to this day, there is no manuscript, there is no church father, there is no version that when you look at the text as a whole contains the Byzantine text type. We're not talking about isolated readings, but about a pattern of readings that uh, determines what uh, text type a uh, witness belongs to. So there's no dispute about this, that prior to the fourth century, there's no evidence in Greek manuscripts, versions, or fathers for anybody having used a text that belonged to the Byzantine text type. And then people say, but that's an argument from silence. And my response to that is, and I think I, I talk about that in the paper, how, how else can you prove the non-existence of something because you're not going to, Origen isn't going to say in the third century, there is no evidence of the Byzantine text. If the Byzantine text doesn't exist, how, how is anybody going to give you proof of that before it exists? Uh, so that, you know, you can come up with these possible scenarios to explain the situation, but uh, if, if all the evidence that we can actually work with uh, moves in this way, I think we, we need to, uh, to uh, you know, deal with it with, with a little bit more seriousness. Yeah? 
Yes, and, and by the way, that's one of uh, Bergen's uh, com, uh, criteria that I mentioned here that Hills develops. Uh, they have this understanding that God somehow um, entrusted the transmission of the New Testament to the Greek-speaking church. Now, I don't know exactly, you know, where in the Bible they get this from. Maybe the, the book of Hezekiah, chapter 54 or something. But this is part of their assumption. Because it's a Greek New Testament, therefore, the, the Greek-speaking church. And that means the, what we now call the Greek Orthodox Church. Yeah. That's correct. They, they give no evidence of having had a text like the Byzantine text type. Oh, yeah. Yeah, all over. Well, um, see, I am not quite as extreme as that. And I'll tell you why. Um, before the papyri were discovered, if you took that position, uh, you would have never given credence to any reading in the Byzantine text type, which was not found earlier than the 4th century, you see. Now, all of a sudden, the papyri, and you find a few of those readings, and I think anybody would have been able to say, yeah, probably. There, there may, may be a lot of readings which are distinctive to the Byzantine text type as we, as in terms of our evidence, but that perhaps they were very ancient. And maybe there's a papyrus that will be discovered tomorrow that will have that reading. Uh, so I am not ready. I, I think if a reading is found only in the Byzantine text, there's a very, very low probability that the reading is ancient. But you cannot ha be 100% certain. And so you have to take into account some other considerations as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, sure. Many of the people in the Eastern Orthodox uh, Church would uh, uh, take that view, although, uh, see, part of my problem is that I do not know what's the state of scholarship in those areas, and I don't know what the scholars would say. Um, but the church as a whole would certainly take that position because, I mean, that's the Greek text that they have been reading all their lives. And uh, it's very, very difficult to, um, you know, dislodge that. Um, yeah. in the same way that it's so difficult in some circles here in the States to dislodge the King James Version, which is perceived as, you know, the, uh, the standards.